Hey, am I cutting out to you? Because you're cutting out to me. Nope, you sound perfect. Okay. Well, yes, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so true. All right, just checking. <laughs> oh, goodness. All of my neighbors are like mowing and trimming and edging today. So, like, I'm like bunkered down. So, that- yeah, the news today, it's when I try to get to the market. Yeah. So, uh, so today we are talking with Joan Lipkin, who is internationally recognized as a groundbreaking theater artist and social activist. She uses performance and civic engagement, creating events and dialogues about the most pressing issues of our time. Many of her projects focus on health and wellness initiatives in community and campus settings. She's worked with diverse populations, including LGBTQIA youth, adults, their families, cancer survivors, people in recovery, communities of faith, women who've been sexually trafficked, and adults with dementia and and inner city youth. Uh, She's an expert on rapid response theater and has contributed to or produced several national projects, including Every 28 Hours, After Orlando, and Climate Change Theater Action. So welcome to (laughs) Traumaturgy. Thank you so much. I'm I'm very happy to be here. Um, Joan and I met, um, gosh, I don't know now, four years ago uh, regarding um, the Every 28 Hours project. I had seen it at Trandy Rep in Rhode Island and was so moved and wanted to bring it to my campus and wasn't sure how to do that. And um, eventually got in touch with Joan, figured, <laughs> figured that out as you were the campus liaison for that project. And, um, and then we went on to uh, present at a conference about the experience and write about it for theater topics. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that project and how you got involved and, um, and the, the response to it? Sure, and, and I wanna say, Suzanne, that I think it was really great that you were one of the first uh, people working in an academic setting who embraced it. And, um, and then I really appreciated your own report and amplifying the project. So every 28 hours is a collection of approximately 71 minute plays that were inspired by the murder of Michael Brown, who was an 18 year old black man who was shot by 28 year old white policeman, Darren Wilson, in Ferguson, which is kind of ancillary, it's it's a um, to St. Louis. It's really part of St. Louis City, and um, uh, so there were a number of artists who came in and were really interested in seeing if there was a way that they could be helpful in amplifying this moment. And so the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, uh, at which time uh, Claudia Alec was principal in terms of community engagement there. She has since moved on to all kinds of other projects. And the One Minute Play Festival director, Dominic D'Andrea, they initiated a national partnership um, by, uh, based on the widely shared and contested statistic that every 28 hours, a person, a black person, is killed by vigilante security guards or policemen in this country. And so they came to St. Louis because it had happened here. They held space uh, 
for a number of the St. Louis playwrights and directors, uh, myself included. Uh, and then we were part of a national project that we pushed out that has had a lot of resonance all over the country in many, many productions. Uh, and, and we've recently sort of pushed it out again because unfortunately the material is still very relevant. Yeah, I saw that um, it's available now um, without royalties or, or what have you, that people can access it. That's right. We just all said, sure, of course. Yeah. Um, when I did it on my campus, um, you know, it was it was a challenge. We are a predominantly white institution, um, but um, the students of color who participated uh, came up to me and talked to me, you know, during and after the project um, that they were grateful for the project, but wanted now to see more you know, theater on campus that um, told their stories and, and not just these types of stories that, um, that this was a nice start, but they wanted, you know, more inclusion, which of course leads to this moment, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. With, with the We See You letter that, that came out. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would hate for the only representation of people of color to be a project like every 28 hours, as magnificent as I feel that this project is, because it's this kind of kaleidoscope and un uh, unfolding of moment upon moment because of their one minute. Of course, we want the full range of humanity of people of color to be depicted um, in the theater. And that's part of the moment I feel that we're that we're in critically in the American theater right now. Joan, I'm not sure if you're able to hear me smoothly. Yes, I am hearing you. Wonderful. Um, is this Loretta? It's Loretta, <laughs> yes. Uh, Suzanne, Hi. colleague and compatriot here, and someone who's just been on the outside of the process that she had to navigate in bringing um, every 28 hours to life within her institution and then some of the scholarship she's done around it. But in hearing this um, origin story, and I'm, I'm sort of struck also by how, um, although for Suzanne and I, neither one of us have any particular touch point within St. Louis or Ferguson, um, each of us have had collaborators who had deep connections. <laughs> so I have a colleague that I've written around uh, inclusion and equity with, and he helped develop the Forward Through Ferguson webpage that sort of told the um, social narrative leading up to and through um, Michael Brown's death and the aftermath. So um, mm -hmm. reflecting on that, just to, that as a moment of cultural trauma, of national trauma, um, in all the different ways that each of our different disciplines and um, perspectives connect back to that point. Um, Mm -hmm. So just sort of reflecting on that. But one thing that you mentioned in thinking about this current moment and wanting so many other voices to also be elevated, um, you know, where do you see a project like Every 28 Hours situating itself into this broader narrative? Well, I think this, is, this kind of work is very important. And, and, and I feel that we're at a moment in, in the theater uh, where we're rethinking, where we're seriously questioning our values. And, and uh, the theater hopefully is a reflection of the wider culture. And the theater has, without any question, 
from the stages to the audiences to the administration to uh, the actors and designers have, has been white centric. And that is that has never been acceptable, but it is less and less acceptable as we go on. Um, we need visionary artists who understand community building. We need artists who are community organizers. Um, and, and also that, you know, for, for years, the field of theater has made invisible the voices of so many, even when we talk about diversity, right, and we have created efforts to shift the field. Um, we've especially um, excluded indigenous and native people upon whose land we actually do the work that we do. So this is a really important moment. And I want to say that when George Floyd was murdered, um, it was very, very painful for many people around the country. For some of my friends and colleagues in St. Louis, people felt re-traumatized. And I'm saying that because this is a traumaturgy, you know, a traumaturgy podcast and this is your area, Loretta. Um, just to, to see that image again and to have that experience and to feel that there was yet more police brutality. Um, this, of course, is not, is not limited to St. Louis. It's, right, it's, it's Minneapolis, it's Baltimore, it's LA, it's Chicago. It's, and it, the reason for this is that we have, a, we have a culture of white supremacy. And it has to, it's so interesting, Loretta, because this is the language that more and more people are willing to embrace. We have to call things out for what they are. I had an interesting conversation with somebody recently who said, you know, you're so political and I'm not so political, she said. And I said, well, you know, to not be political, whatever form that may take for you is actually a position of privilege because it means that you don't have to engage with or acknowledge what's going on for many, many people. <laughs> so just something to think about, right? Well, I guess I'm curious, you know, what yeah. is it that you have done? Because this is, you know, this is systems work. This is industry work. This is yeah. work, right? And then this is, of course, self-work. So I guess I'm curious, as you've navigated this, I can't imagine navigating it as a woman who is white and who is having a microphone set of issues that doesn't reflect her direct community. Um, I, I can't imagine that you've navigated that without hitting up against some pushback about whether or not you have a microphone or whether you should have a voice in the work. And so what work have you done for yourself to get to a place where you are willing to name white supremacy as the barrier? And then what kind of work have you needed to do to handle the, the shifting power dynamic along being that voice against white supremacy? You know, that is such a good question. I mean, I, I feel that that is a major question for white people who identify as or want to become allies. Uh, I think there are a lot of approaches. For one thing, um, I'm trying to be humble and I'm trying to to listen more and talk less and to show up and uh, to educate myself as much. So for example, tonight, um, I am going to virtually, of course, um, the first of a series on racism and the law that is sponsored by Washington University. 
here. And um, I made a choice to do that instead of going to see a performance. Uh, I am in a continual process of educating myself. This, and this is not just because of this moment that we're in. I have been in a process of educating myself for a long time. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. My family were original members of the NAACP, and they chose not to leave the south side of Chicago in, quote, white flight, unquote, as many others did. Um, but that doesn't mean that I know everything I should know. I, the, more I, the more I listen, the more I learn, the more aware I am of my own ignorance and my own privilege. Um, but I have for a long time been intentional and I think what we need to do as white allies and artists and, and therapists and uh, workers in the theater is to be intentional. So, for example, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, when I uh, started our Briefs Festival of LGBTQIA plays, short plays, and we did it for six years, we produced 48 short plays and uh, gave out many awards to young writers. Um, we're not doing that anymore. We've shifted what we're working on. But I said, because I was the artistic director, I said, um, half of the directors will be women <laughs> and at least half of them will be people of color. And I already knew a lot of directors of color and a lot of women working in the theater in St. Louis, but I didn't know everybody. And I started working with people that I didn't know. Um, so I was intentional about providing opportunity. Um, another thing that we've done lately, which I think is interesting, is that we've got Dance the Vote. Is it possible for me to shift and tell you just for a moment what we're doing differently with oh, that? Yes, that might please. be. Well, so Dance the Vote uh, comes out of our desire to help artists be more involved in, um, in the electoral process and in voting. And I'm just going to give a little bit of background because this background also reflects racist practices in the country. Um, so, for example, between 2016 and 2018, 17 million people were purged from the voter rolls. And Stacey Abrams probably would be the governor of Georgia today if the voting had not been suppressed. Um, in 2016, six million people were denied the right to vote who had previous felony charges, but that, that were not active. So in over half the country, we have voting restriction. And, um, and we have a lot of suppression here in Missouri. And this is really... This is really targeted at people of color, as well as poor people and immigrants and um, people who might have some difficulties in accessing the vote. So we started this fantastic project. I mean, I, I, <laughs> if I can say that about one of my own projects, but I really, I love this project. Um, it, it was a core group of uh, intergenerational group of women um, and racially mixed who got together and said, let us give artists an opportunity to respond to issues of voting, the history of voting, the urgency of voting, especially as it applies to the history of women and people of color in this country, to, so that they would create short pieces 
and um, and we'd also have people sing, and we'd also have spoken word, and it would be very locally based, and and we'd also pair it with voter registration. So we started out small. Uh, we were outside my friend Tom Ray's record store, Vintage Vinyl, and then we were at Left Bank Books, and then we were at St. Louis Black Pride. Then in, um, a year and a half ago, I believe, in October, during the midterms, we had 1,100 people come show up and we did it at the Missouri History Museum. Uh, that was a lot of people. <laughs> and and we, we had a lot of coverage because we were nonpartisan. So we were able to then push out the, the message of the way that art can be used as a, as a vehicle for civic engagement and exciting people about being involved. Well, then the pandemic hit, <laughs> right? Uh, and it was clear that we were not going to be able to make it possible for people to come to a big event. And we've talked a lot about it. And I feel that our first responsibility is to public health. So what we have decided to do is to use that much used word pivot right now that you use, Suzanne. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like pivot is now you're going to open up the dictionary and it's all going to fall to the word pivot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. But but it this moment is really requiring it's really calling upon us to be creative and to be flexible. So we decided that we would commission dancers to create work, um, but we would this, it would be a paid commission. So I'm busy raising money right now. And uh, it, that, that the commissions would go to artists of color. Great. So, And is that the first yeah. organize that project in that way? And just in response to needing to make this change? Yes. I mean, we had, we were, we were um, thoughtful about making sure that we had a very integrated um, um, lineup. You know, we had a lot of artists. At one performance, we had over 20 different groups. And, but uh, a lot of people were donating their time because the project has been building, right? And, and this time I said to my, my organizing team, I said, you know what? This is not a time that I wanna ask people to donate their time, especially artists of color. And this is a time that I really think that we should amplify their talents and gifts if they're interested. And, and I also feel that we, um, that we want to both support the local and also encourage the national. So the people on our team are, uh, I mean, I'm, in, I'm a theater artist, a, you know, writer and director and producer, but uh, two of the major folks on our team are both choreographers who have dance companies. So they started calling people and we have been getting responses from companies. I don't want to, I want to name drop, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not they going to could. because I don't have a contract yet. <laughs> you know, but That's exciting. for them to yeah. say, oh my gosh, Suzanne and Loretta, they've been saying to us, wow. This is so exciting. Yeah, we're interested. And so what we are doing is we have a wonderful website for a Dance the Vote, uh, Dance the Vote, 
stl.org. And what we're doing is we're also trying to use this as a way to help people understand what the stats are and also to help people understand what the deadlines for registration are and to help people understand how they should both check their registration, they can also register online, but also what the complexities are of registering for absentee voting. Uh, it's, 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 the government has made it very complicated. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that our role as artists in this moment with this particular project is, is to um, help inform and help educate and also share resources. And I've also shifted in this project to my, my system of, of direction because in the past I was the artistic director and I had this team and we would all talk and I would ultimately make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I have decided that one of the things I would love to see contemporary American theater do going forward is to have shared leadership, more shared leadership in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of age. So um, it's a kind of horizontal leadership now. We all talk about it. We all discuss everything and we, we have to agree. They really need you. Joan, yeah. it's almost three o'clock, so we have to let you go, though we don't really want to. Um, but we certainly appreciate your time um, and your knowledge and sharing all of that with us and with the podcast listeners. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful um, that you found time for us today. Yeah. Oh, it was my pleasure and really nice to meet you, Loretta. I didn't talk about After Orlando, I which I think, which I think is such an incredible project. Um, I produced it at Atha last summer, um, but who better to talk about it than Cara Dodd? Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, exactly. you know, Thank you so much. I mean, seriously. Hi. Hi. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Um, so, uh, after we talk to Cardad, um, we should probably talk about what we want to do with this episode. Okay. <laughs> we, um, so it's great to finally actually meet you since, um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're coming to my school, uh, virtually. Finally, finally. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate you. Uh, I believe the, that format it will be that I will um, take pieces of the bio that you sent us to introduce you. And, um, and then we will have a conversation. Like I said in the email, um, you know, the, um, I, you really came to my attention. I mean, obviously, I consider you a very famous playwright, but um, <laughs> I do. But beyond that, um, you came to my attention from, from your dear theater tweets, um, so yep. which I actually use in the classroom. Um, You're kidding me. No. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, I'm, I'm turning them into a book. Oh, good. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, so we'll talk about those. And then... And then I'd love, uh, you know, uh, to talk about, um, of course, the um, 
the you know the letter, the dear white American theater, we see you letter, um, right. and then what you're doing during this time, you know, um, how uh, physical distancing has you know changed how you're working, if it has. Sure, happy to answer all those questions. <laughs> and is there anything specifically that that you really want to talk about? today um, that I am not sort of generally talking about? I think that's a lot already and probably cover things within that, that, uh, that'll be on my mind anyway. And, um, and it is a conversation. So, you know, if we go off topic and we don't hit some of that stuff, then that's sort of what happens. Um, and Loretta and, and I will, you know, jump in, but really it's to, to hear your thoughts on this moment in theater. Sure, okay. lovely. So we've been recording this whole time, but now we'll like officially. Okay, so today we are here with Karidad Switch, who uh, is a playwright who received the 2012 Obie for Lifetime Achievement, 2011 American Theatre Critics Association Primus Prize for the House of Spirits, best based on uh, Isabel Allende's novel, and of course the uh, rolling world premiere for her play Red Bike. Uh, her play Town Hall premiered at Red Tape Theater in Chicago in May 2020, having developed at Tate. Did that still premiere? Uh, it was canceled due to COVID. Yeah, canceled <laughs> due to COVID. Yep. Yeah. Is your um, is your film still scheduled? Your uh, film uh, Fugitive Dreams. The is film will probably yeah. Well, the film will probably be out next year, just because of everything. Next yeah. year. Next Okay. Yeah, I think every I think everything now is 2021, except for a lot of the digital stuff that I'm doing. Great. Okay. So yeah. So let's. I guess then, since that sort of like came up through just looking <laughs> at your bio and your work. So yeah. here we are, and um, and you know these these projects. You know, um, your opera based on Bernalda Alba and the yeah. film Fugitive Dreams. I mean. What has it been like to, you know, be working on this material for years and then have, you know, it postponed? Oh, so many things, so many issues. I mean, uh, I had, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, three world premieres, one area premiere, <laughs> cancel slash postpone. Uh, within two months of each, you know, as soon as COVID hit. Uh, so uh, so I, I found myself most of March um, not only teaching on Zoom, orienting all my classes uh, that I was teaching at Rutgers University and at NYU on Zoom, yeah. as I'm sure many of you have been doing as well, uh, but also dealing with the fallout of like, on, a, on any of these plays that were going up, that were especially the ones going into world premiere mode, maybe five year work on each of them, uh, plus research before that for one of them was heavily research-based. So, and then, and then trying to figure out which ones were still moving forward in 2021 and which ones were indefinite. And uh, with that, the opera now sort of because of the, the nature of, uh, uh, the danger of singing groups. <laughs> now I don't know when the opera is going to happen. Uh, so, so that's all been, my composer and I have been 
sort of that was like three years of work uh and then the film you know made we made it um this year actually really super fast uh and, and realizing a lot, a lot of the festivals that we were submitting to were actually uh, not weren't even thinking about taking submissions for especially at the super independent level uh so so it's just been like a year of um so far <laughs> a year of um pondering the future i think mostly and trying to figure out uh, many things one of them being how to stay focused uh during this time how to keep making work and i feel very strongly about that uh surprisingly weirdly i've been making uh i've been writing a lot <laughs> i've just been writing and writing and writing uh and uh, all sorts of things you know essays and plays and uh so i feel like uh for some reason i i think it's feeling I had one minute. I, I won't say I didn't have a meltdown because I had a mini meltdown uh, toward the tail end of March when it just everything seemed impossible somehow. And then I sort of like I was like, first of all, for the for educators, um, I was also holding a lot of space with my students during this time. So um, trying to figure out like, you know, they were going through we were all going through it together. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that uh, and I and they were all of the classes that I were teaching were writing classes. So so it was like, yep, keep writing, figuring out, keep. But actually, what I think I found, especially with my students, and I think what happened is that the students inspired me. Uh, they were like eager to write their stories and you know their sci-fi or whatever they were writing. They were just eager to write them. They felt like you know it was an escape, basically, right? You lose yourself in an imaginary world make up the rules for them. Uh, and somehow through that process, you're also responding to the moment that you're in, right? That's the job of writing and the job of feeling that writing does. So so I, I was so inspired by my students that I was like, well, I shouldn't be bemoaning. I should like face my computer and get to work, <laughs> you know? It's about like, and there's also, you know, in the theater is such a, Oh, it's such a humble business. You make like $2 if you're lucky in a way. So I felt like um, the good thing was, you know, I kept thinking about this quote from fellow playwright, Alistair McDowell, and talks about um, you're going to, even in even in quote, normal times, those are, um, theater is live. Um, you know, you you may be writing five things and maybe only one of them will get traction, right? So so I think, but you have to believe in the doing of the work and you have to believe in the spiritual practice, the daily practice of facing the page and challenging yourself every day to think about the form and the field uh, and also realizing that on a practical level, uh, there will be plays that will may never get done. You know what I mean? So, so... I thought that that, you know, that made that actually not a depressing thing to, to think about. Uh, I think it's sort of like, that's just the nature of business. And, and I feel like in these times, uh, I've always been excited about a digital theater. I've, I've been championing it for year 2000 um, and, and sometimes to dismaying years and sometimes to ears that say yay. Um, so because a lot of my work, not but a great deal of it, uh, 
functions and it kind of uh, deals with mediation and deals with law-mediated spaces converging. So, uh, and I have an interest in an installation theater as well. So I think that I was already kind of thinking along those lines. And actually I've, I've found for those that are embracing what digital theater means, and for those that have been doing it for a long time as well, this is an interesting point of moment of conversion. And I think also it will change the field forever. I mean, I'm hoping uh, in terms of access for one thing, um, uh, in terms of a global community that has Wi-Fi. <laughs> so some global communities don't have Wi-Fi. For the moment, global communities that have Wi-Fi to actually be able to share work together that that's a very exciting thing and democratizes spaces that have felt uh, physically unapproachable, fiscally unapproachable to a lot of audiences and fellow practitioners. So I'm excited by that. That's a nutshell of everything that's going on right now for me. But <laughs> I, can always, I can always give you more. <laughs> well, I, I feel like there's a very specific place that you find your, your personal and professional trajectory. And um, I don't know exactly, you know, your age or when your career began and launched, um, but it sounds like you're in this very sweet mid-career ascending um, place where a lot of, you know, uh, culminating energy, right, was was kicking off this year. And yeah. of course, you know, cause the pivot, the interruption that we've all found ourselves in. And so I'm just sort of struck by that first and foremost, just the the opportunity to discuss a little bit around what that personally to, to feel that that bit of traction slipping under your feet when I would imagine if you're anything like Suzanne and I that took a lot of energy to get going. <laughs> so, yes. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, that's something I'm kind of hearing a little bit about because I think that's um. I think there's a cohort of folks and I don't think it's just age-based. I think there's something about this um, set of historical moments that we've navigated ourselves through as professionals where our work feels particularly necessary and urgent for this moment and particularly designed for this moment, but is also um, perhaps threatened, right? Like this was the moment it was supposed to scale and suddenly maybe it's not scaling quite the way we thought. So yeah, I don't think yeah. those are experiences but so I'm just curious what it's like for you in your own specific experience of that oh yeah I was I was just actually talking to some of the folks from the Kilroys about this um because you know they're can I say this I think I can um <laughs> I don't know how public it is uh but they let me say it in a more general way they're thinking about uh featuring what they're calling the lost season uh, and uh, and so they they called me and they said oh how are you doing and I was like well it's interesting I like you know, I felt like I was writing this I mean I I had uh, you know two productions in January one a red bike at Moxie Theater in San Diego one a Tropic of X at in Montreal with Imago Theater and going into and both plays I love and and both of them radically different from each other uh, and. So writing, going from that into what was going to be a flurry, sort of mini flurry of productions culminating in uh, for the summer with Ushuaia Blue at the Contemporary American Theater Festival. Uh, and CATF particularly had been a 
a festival that I be a part of for a long time and that was like years of doing the dance of like hello hi I'm a playwright what are you doing and uh, and so and finally it was going to happen you know and I we've gotten the green light I got the green light in December and we were in meetings and all of that is ha was happening and suddenly it wasn't happening although they've been really great about uh, sustaining still in design meetings for next year uh, and we're still talking so supportive of all the work um and then the in the fall would have been the premiere of Eva, my adaptation of Isabel Allende's not uh and then followed by that uh, which may still be happening on zoom I don't know uh we'll still see uh with Ubuntu theater in San Francisco my my radical deconstruction of a Christmas carol uh so that may still be happening we shall see uh so yeah so it felt like it was a year of like boom <laughs> You know, uh, and also, of course, it means like years and years of work before that, where you're just kind of like, but I, I did feel it was a, a lot of emergence, and now suddenly that's not there. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think that part of that, uh, I think what's happened is that in some ways, you know, I'm as, um, I'm still like massively busy. Like, I'm working on a commission right now, and I'm, Red Bike is streaming at No Theater. Thank, thank heaven for No Theater in Cincinnati. It's streaming at No until June 30th. And now Teatro Paraguas in New Mexico is doing a production of it that will run in July. And so I feel like there's the work is somehow in the air still. And that makes me really excited and happy uh, because I think that, you know, a lot of the work that happens in business is public facing. Uh, it's, you know, at the or in a rehearsal room or around a table or at a coffee shop. Or, uh, and so so when you get to the public-facing part of the work, there's so much that's gone behind it. And, and then I feel like that entity as an artist is somehow measured only by the public-facing work. Uh, and actually, there's all this stuff that happens behind and before. Uh, so, yeah, so I just think that, oh, okay, now I wait a year and... But I'm not waiting. I'm just continuing to make things and to collaborate with people. In fact, we're I'm already talking about a perhaps uh, I think what might be a hybrid installation virtual theater production of a new play in February of 2021. Uh, so so you know I'm I'm kind of just thinking forward uh, and thinking also of the now and then around that um, doing a lot of work you know sort of in the podcast realm like here but also. Uh, collaborating with um, people that are exploring oral, A-U-R-A-L, dramaturgies, and doing an audio piece for San Diego Rep. So I think a lot of other things are opening up for me as an artist and, and things that I've always been interested in doing. Uh, so so I'm trying to, I'm, I'm a creative optimist, so, I, so I'm trying to stay positive as opposed to look at the downside of everything. I think that the traction element uh, is a real thing, and I think that that one, it's a little more difficult because um, a lot of uh, because my work is very varied. You know, uh, some people only know me as a translator. Some people only know me as a playwright. So only people only know only know me as an adapter of novels. Some people only know me through my books on theater. Um, some people know all of those things. Very few, <laughs> and so so I feel like I have a lot of different uh, audiences, but uh, uh, like also. Uh, and maybe this is a good thing. I don't know. Um, people that that don't 
kind of understand what I do, you know, so, so they're like trying to figure me out all the time, which is partly is fun and it's provocative and mischievous on my part, but it's also like annoying because <laughs> I'd be like, here, I do all these things, <laughs> carry on, you know? Um, so, and, and I, so I thought, well, if I have some public facing work, people might start to get it, you know, they might start to go, oh, that's what she does. So, um, so I feel like not having that at the moment, except for like, thankfully some of this digital and some of the audio that's coming up. Uh, oh, okay. I have to reframe myself yet again. Right. Uh, and of course, because the bigger institutions, um, the conversations that I've been having with them, the ones that I have been having are all like, well, 22, 23, 24, 24. Like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be around that. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I can't keep waiting. Uh, so uh, uh, and I, and I think it's also like we work, we make work for the moment, uh, even if hopefully work that will transcend the moment. But I feel like, uh, I think it's to think, I think personally that you can be planning for 23 and know what the world is going to be like then. Uh, and yeah, think people right? are going to, people, people are going to want to see why whatever you're going to put on stage you know so so i find that uh frustrating but also something that's been part of this industry for a long time i mean i remember talking to small theater companies shall remain nameless and small i mean in terms of budget size um doing experimental work who said to me oh we plan we now plan five years in advance and we don't read anything or look at anything for five years and i'm like are you kidding me like you don't know what the world's gonna be like and i think so i think that one of the things this this particular global moment of crisis has um, multiple crises has illuminated is that for those of the for, for folks that are awake uh to the moment and alert to the moment oh maybe we should be doing that maybe we should be actually uh making work in a more rapid response manner or being incredibly flexible with how we present display manifest work um including thinking of installation theater and audio theater and or parallel virtual theater uh while your live venues are closed you know so 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 i'm hoping that this is a, a moment of reckoning on not only on on white american theater level all levels in terms of how things are run and function and operate. Uh, but also the part of me that's skeptical is like, yeah, probably 10 people will get it. And then 20,000 other people will be like business as usual. Uh, and that's what I'm afraid of. Yeah. So, so exactly like, you know, you've been um, thoughtfully criticizing, um, you know, the institutionalization of American theater for a while on your Twitter. Right. So, there are these, these tweets um, that you've been sending out that all start with Dear Theater and, you know, in poetic ways and, um, and interesting ways, you're sort of shining a light on this idea of, you know, business as, as usual and, you know, and the three act, you know, European, you know, male, white play and all of those things. Um, so... So you've, you've been thinking about this for a really long time. So now here we are where other people, hopefully more than 10, are starting to think along this way. <laughs> um, you know, is this making you hopeful or, or 
you know, are you looking at your, you know, your dear theater tweets as like maybe a, a spark that started some of this? I mean, what is your thoughts about this moment of re-examining American theater? Right. The dear theater tweets started from a, just a personal, I've been looking at how different writers uh, use the Twitter sphere, uh, uh, writer, artist, practitioner folks, uh, Rajni Shah, R-A-J, Shaw, H-A-A-H, has been doing um, something that she calls free writing on Twitter for maybe two, two years, three years. I admire her, her work immensely. She's a, a installation theater artist um, that works around issues of resiliency and works, uh, does kind of what we use, what maybe some people call street theater, you know, kind of like she parks herself in a place and does work and suddenly the audience around her, stuff like that. Um, and she does a lot of work around deep listening in, in theater spaces. And uh, I've been admiring her free writing uh, posts. Uh, and I was like, huh. And then I also, before that, uh, David Gregg, who's a Scottish playwright um, and the director of the Lyceum in Edinburgh, um, was, did a did a piece called around the Scottish uh, uh, referendum for independence called the yes, the yes, no plays. And he, he basically wrote them on Twitter and posted. It was like, you know, at the time it was when we had only so many characters uh, and just every day would do like another installment. And I was like, this is a, as a political gesture. Right. And I was like, I love, I love both of these strands of thinking about how to use uh, this social media space that exists. And so, and so I was just uh, wrapping my brain around, I think I'd been working on, I just finished my book for Rutledge, which was a book in the Angry Inch. And before that I did a, a book for Matthew, 50 playwrights on their craft. And, and the 50 playwrights book and the head of it happened sort of simultaneously, although they had different timelines around them in terms of publication. And so I, I was kind of in a headspace of trying to, articulate actually some of the reckonings and teasings around the writings that had come through both of those books uh, and trying to put them in a different space. And I also love the idea of a, an audience sort of being there, but you don't know, quite know who they are. And that's, that's what happens in social media, right? So I, so I started to, and also I had these dreams, right? I would just get up in the middle of the night and go to your theater. I want to talk to you about this. <laughs> and, uh, and so I thought, well, maybe this dream this dream, uh, utopian dreaming space can exist in this platform. So I started to experiment with that as a, as a place literally of writing down kind of dreams that I was having, uh, but also a space to, to see if, if there was a way of provoking and instigating something and also to create a consistent, uh, as a way of a spiritual practice for myself as a writer, a space that can live as its own space virtually um, that sort of documents a moment or a time. Uh, so I love the time uh, aspect of, of Twitter um, by the minute, by the second, by the hour, by the day. Um, and so to look at it that way is kind of to see as a series of posts and to see what would evolve. And in fact, what happened is that it sort of kept evolving. And, and I found it to be a space of, um, mischief and provocation, but also a space where I was actually putting down 
thoughts that I'd been thinking for a long time and maybe had articulated in different ways in essay form or in book form, but hadn't really uh, crystallized in, in this manner. So, um, and then suddenly finding like people were like writing to me and being inspired. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> like, you know, who knew? And, uh, you know, or maybe who were encountering my work for the first time in this manner. And so I, I found that really exciting. And, um, and now it's it's yielding to, I think, one, I feel like an obligation uh, to continue uh, space of provocation that Dear Theater occupies, and, and also to think of it also as the future space. And I think more and more, I think of it that way. Uh, what what are things that we can tell the future, or what what are things that we can tell? Uh, maybe as we ask theater deep questions or even silly questions about um, institu institutional thinking, but also corporate thinking uh, and ways of, of breaking down the ecology that we live in so that it's a healthier ecology. And we're in that moment right now where, right, the, um, the Dear White American Theater letter has uh, been right. published and people have co-signed this letter about you know this moment of um, you know potential hopefully potential change in how things are done in in our you know big regional houses or Broadway or New York City um, you know since again since you've sort of been thinking about this for a while um, you know using all these different ways to create different types of theater and to be inclusive I mean. What is your thought about this this letter and this moment in time? Oh yeah, the letter I signed it, of course. Uh, uh, I I hope it's not just a letter. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's my fear around it. It's like a big, big letter, you know, signed by a lot of amazing folks, uh, and it has a nice little profile in America. In, New York Times, you know, but but I but I hope something comes of it. I hope it's not just like a we see, that we see you. I don't think that we see you is enough. Like I think that we see you is a first step. Uh, we see you, but I also think we have been seeing you. <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna say like we've been seeing you for a long time. Like you know, a lot of people that have been in the culture wars for ages that that have articulated a lot of what's sort of uh, been said in that letter. Uh, you know, and so I, so I, I worry a little bit uh, about two things. One is that that we've been seeing you is not kind of doesn't feel as weighted in it. Uh, the other part of it is that uh, the letter can't be enough. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, are there action steps or better? You know, and what are they? Uh, and so I, I'm hope I hope. So the the hopeful part of me is like I hope there are action steps around it, um, or else it, it becomes sort of a. a a rhetorical gesture, um, which uh, has its own purpose, but uh, but I think can be cannot really move, affect change. You know, I, I I'm just thinking about what the efficacy of the letter is going to be, uh, and and if there is efficacy in mind, and maybe there is. You know, uh, uh, you know, I I don't know the you know uh, what action steps uh, are being designed behind behind Zoom doors <laughs> around us. But uh but I but it feels to me like if that if that doesn't happen and it's just a you know it's sort of around the performance of I've been thinking a lot about how 
and I'm sure you have too, around how a lot of the, speaking of a lot of the institutional leaders uh, have been performing uh, uh, their language around uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, hi, let me send you another post about how we are anti-racist and we are thinking about being anti-racist or we want to be anti-racist, you know, and I'm just like, you know, guys, <laughs> I'm glad that you're performing this for us all. Just do the work, you know. Uh, uh, so it worries me that the the sort of the performance is, is going to supersede action. And so that's the, my one big concern around it. Uh, but listen, if it if it affects change, I'm all for it. Uh, then we have to look for kind of change. I think one of the things that I always worry about, uh, and this was this was true, I think even two years ago when you know, a lot of their artistic leaderships around this country uh, changed, right? And so suddenly we had a lot of uh, uh, women POC, BIPOC people um, uh, uh, heading theater, right? Uh, and, and I think the assumption was, and there'll be all this change. And I'm like, well, you know, if the structures are the same that run all those places, right? If the board of directors and the way the, the building is run, but actually then real, then actual, it doesn't change, right? Because what you have to do is take all those structures and rethink them all. Uh, and I think I know that takes a lot of time and a lot. Of, uh, so maybe in five years or ten, uh, we'll see the the results. Um, uh, but uh, just because you have a new artistic director, uh, they're still walking into a situation where it's that same board of directors and that same, you know, higher base set up. Uh, so, so until that shifts, uh, I'm not so sure that, that it, that it actually has changed outside of there's like an amazing POC person at the top. Right. Uh, uh, so I think that's my, my, you know, it's like little red flags, you know, I'm like little red flag moment is like, just make sure that we don't think the work is done just because the figurehead is um, and, and, you know, that's exponential across other businesses as well, not just theater. Uh, so, so yeah, so it's, that's just a concern, but, uh, but I'm, uh, like I said, I'm a hopeful person. So I'm, I'm like, I'm all in to be in the trenches and fight the good fight and, and try to make sure that, um, there, there actually is no table, but that we're all sitting somewhere together with each other. <laughs> When we spoke with Joan, she mentioned the the space that she's intentionally made in her career and in her work for action and community action in her work and in the work that she collaborates around. And I'm guess you know hearing the um, dissatisfaction that you feel in the possibility the letter is is more rhetorical exercise than praxis. You know, I'm I'm wondering in your work where you see yourself making that space for action or where you see your work as being an example of action? Um, or is that something that you find yourself reflecting on currently? Oh, you know, I, I founded No Passport Theater Alliance and Press uh, in three, uh, a space for many things. One, one of, one about thinking about theater. Uh, uh, the other one around, uh, a bridge between the academy and the arts because uh, sometimes you have practitioners who are 
I wouldn't have allowed him to the academy to have a conversation. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to change. Uh, and that there be a, you know, a cross connection and cross dialogue. Um, and also as a space for, for instigation and theater action. So, so through No Passport, uh, not only have I been publishing over a hundred titles by, by writers, um, uh, uh, and a lot of the work in translation. So trying to get work out there somehow that, that you might not otherwise be able to hands on. Um, and I, I, see that as a, a form of both advocacy so action um so i did uh several theater actions so one of them around uh because my great focus of my own work is around uh human and environmental rights so the first theater action that i did with 50 venues across the across the world was a focus on the of deep outer horizon disaster um in the gulf of mexico and and at the environmental damage there and so it was a kind of like a reading of a play, but also I partnered with the Earth Institute and the Waterkeeper Alliance uh, globally, uh, Waterkeeper Alliances. Uh, and, you know, and each, each of those uh, events, uh, uh, a forum or a symposia or a panel, something that kind of it wasn't just a play, but it existed in a wider realm with the audience and with the folks that were there. Um, that led to a, to a theater action around veterans, especially female veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and looking at issues of PTSD and, and just homecoming in general for, for veterans uh, and uh, coexistence with civilians in communities. Um, and then one around gun control that gun control theater action that ended up in a book called 24 gun control plays um and that was built shortly after sandy hook uh and then, um one on climate change theater action another one on the fragile shore of the universe and looking at coastal erosion and looking at erosions from uh land erosions from wars uh, uh and then after theater action uh, which was done uh Right after the the Pulse massacre, um, so so I those were multi, multiple artists, sometimes single artists, but usually multiple artists, uh, wide ranging grassroots. You know, me getting on the phone, uh, me and some of my colleagues getting on the phone, going, "Hey, do you want to be part of this? How can we make this happen in your neighborhood?" Um, so really, like just knocking on, like knocking on the door, like literal, like old school, <laughs> you know, uh, almost like pamphleteering, like, hello, we're a theater and we want to connect and how can we do this together kind of stuff. So I feel like I've been doing that time and, and um, in different ways and, you know, kind of like self-producing kind of entity. Um, but way of thinking, I think one of the reasons that I started doing that through No Passport, uh, beyond publishing and beyond doing conferences, we did about 10 conferences, uh, uh, universities, uh, uh, but some of them at the Eurek and Poets Cafe in New York was just around trying to uh, have a different kind of relationship to audiences, basically. I just felt like uh, I get tired as a, an artist around the sort of, you know, you wait and then you wait and then maybe there's an audience or maybe there isn't an audience and then what well, conversation are you really having and I think that when you make a work of art uh you're all a conversation of some kind with your audience you know um 
And so, and I just wanted to change the direction of how that conversation occurred um, through a kind of more self-generated means, but also through a wider means in terms of collaboration with uh, wider communities. Um, uh, and also thinking about it from a thematic point of view, but also thinking it from a rapid response theater action point of view. So, so it set me in different directions. Like, um, uh, I'd like to do more of that work. I haven't done a big theater action since after Orlando, partly because that took so much, that took so much energy. It was like more than 80 pieces. We were curating stuff you know, around the world, uh, we had readings in London, we had reading, you know, it was like, it was, there was so much and it was all kind of like on the backs of myself and two colleagues, <laughs> you know, and we were just kind of like, you know, my two colleagues, Zach Klein and Blair Baker on that project. And we were just like, you know, trying to make it all happen. I was like, I was like about to like, and I'd done like seven of them in a row of these and, I, and you know, and two of them had happened consecutively in the same year. Uh, these kind of massive theater actions. And so I, I just was like, you know, I, I need a lane of stop for a second and kind of regroup. Uh, and, you know, because it's a lot of energy uh, uh, to make that happen. So so I was just trying to rethink a different way to do it. And also because I think I also didn't want it to feel like a gimmick. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's that wonderful book now on capitalism and the gimmick, right? You know, so, so none of this was for any money. Like it was all for charitable causes, you know. So, so I was just think about ways of, you know, I want to make sure that when I'm doing a big theater action that, that it's, that the intentions rehounded and always have been, but I wanted to make sure that was forward, uh, that the, the intentions around them were clear. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, great. Thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, this is, this has been really, um, a really great conversation and, um, and very, very similar to a lot of the themes that we talked to Joan about without even really realizing it. Uh, so this <laughs> is, yeah, so this is, uh, really appreciate your time on this. Um, and I'm so glad to hear your writing because of course so many playwrights right now are like, oh, I can't write. So it's it's really great to hear that that you've been able to, to write uh, during all of this time. Yeah, I'm I'm going for a play a month. That's my goal right now. I, I <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I'm going to have a stack. I don't know if that happens right now. It's been happening, so I okay. I'm just going <laughs> to keep going. I'm just going to keep going. I have a stack of plays. <laughs>